In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So the the title of the talk this evening is Becoming a Capacity for God. And I'll explain um, the reason why I chose that title. When we when we reflect on the meaning of the incarnation, the self the, the, the self emptying of the Son of God who comes as a servant and as a man who um, doesn't exploit his divinity, doesn't manage his relationships from the point of view of his divinity, but rather from the point of view of a servant. Um, we find in this experience of the, the self-emptying or the kenosis of Christ, a path or a, or a model that we follow in our own lives for how we also, in, in, in following that example of Christ, how we become a capacity to receive divine life. Because <clears throat> when we think about the life of Christ, when we think about the, the person of the Son as he is known to us in the Incarnation, he doesn't set himself up as being a separate identity from his father. He doesn't come to have a separate will from the father. Right? He often spoke about how he came only to do the will of the father, how he came only to do the works of the father, to, to speak the words of the father. In other words, Christ is a pure capacity of the father. He is a pure receptivity of the father. Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the face of glory. So in in all of his dealings with with us in in his incarnate state, he manifests himself as this perfect, pure capacity of divine life. And he sets, therefore, for us the model of what, what that receptivity looks like for the Christian. How do we think of the Christian life as a receptivity rather than uh, as a life where we simply accomplish and do things. Because we can we can mistake in the Christian life for um, commandments and laws and uh, morals and, um, and things that we have to do, right? Things that we have to accomplish. But the primary understanding of Christianity is how we become this capacity for the life of God to dwell in us. And so, really then, the Christian life is more about emptying oneself, following the example of Christ, the emptying of Christ, in order to be a capacity, a receptivity of the divine life. Okay, So that's kind of the the model that we want to follow. But what does that look like? What does it mean for us to become um, a receptivity of divine life? What does it mean for us to to have this capacity for divinity? Um, and so we'll look at some characteristics of that. That's kind of what I want to to like focus on this evening. Is what 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 are some of these characteristics of this life of 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 potentiality, right? To be a potentiality of God's life in us. And so you find these kind of paradoxes or these kind of contradictions, like 
Some, uh, for example, one of the uh, saints said, one cannot live as a Christian, one can only die as a Christian. Right? Meaning that the Christian life is not about what we do, right? About, about living, but it's about how we die. It's about how we empty, how we die to the self, to the ego, to the false man, to the old man, to be capable of receiving the life of God in us, right? So when St. Paul, for example, says, I die daily in one of his epistles, he's talking about this, this understanding that true life means death, means a, a continual death of the old man so that the new man might be born in us, might appear in us. So, again, one of the saints, he said something very beautiful. He said, when the beloved, capital B, beloved, that, that is the Lord, sees his beloved, which is the human soul, empty of all else, he cannot long stay away. So much does God love us that when he finds us open and ready, he cannot refrain from filling us to the extent that we are emptied. Right? So this idea that when God sees that we have died to the old man, when he sees that we have emptied ourselves, then he cannot stay away and he comes to fill us with his divine life. So what does that mean? How do we break that down um, by looking at certain characteristics? Um, and, and so we'll just look at a few of them. I mean, this is not an exhaustive list and uh, try to keep it a reasonable um, length of time for, for us this evening. But the first one is, and all of these are kind of looking at how we might look at a sort of negation versus something that we do or acquire. Right? I'm going to look at all of these qualities as a sort of negation, um, not a negativity, but a negation, you know, an emptying, a dying, a letting go of something so that we make ourselves again a capable vessel, a receptivity. Right? So the first one is the distinction between um, the distinction between detachment and attachment. Detachment and attachment. Right? So again, one of the saints says, detachment is simply a condition for the lofty gifts of God, which he wishes to grant anyone who is ready for them. So again, detachment is a condition that prepares the way for the gifts of God. It's a form of emptying, right? So detachment is another way of expressing our love for God. Um, because it's not a matter of giving up. Um, it's not a matter of giving up things. When we say, when we talk about detachment, we're not talking about giving up, you know, things that we have for the sake of just giving them away. But we're talking about freeing the heart of the attachments to the heart, right? So it's about how to be free to receive and to experience the love between the soul and the Lord, um, which has no other attachment that um, competes with that love, right? Um, so when the heart desires things, people, honors, uh uh, distinctions, roles, uh, titles, positions, whatever it is, when the heart becomes attached to those things, then it becomes incapable of being a pure, empty vessel, right? 
to be to be filled with the attachment uh, to the life of God Himself, right? And this is what the Church tries to give us an experience of in the fasting seasons. The Church is trying to help us to at least be aware of our attachments, right? Even if we are not successful in uh, completely detaching the heart from these things. But it's to awaken in us a sense of, yes, my heart is attached to things, to people, to honors, to dignities, to titles, to all of these things, right? And so this is kind of how the heart is awakened by, by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. The heart is awakened to, to see its attachments, to see its um, the things that it... it clings to in terms of its possessions. Um, Again, not primarily material things, but even more so the immaterial things, like, again, as I said, um, honors, you know, and and those kinds of attachments that, or sometimes we're, we're, or even respect. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be respected, but I'm saying sometimes there is an, uh, an unhealthy attachment to respect to these kinds of things, right? Um, and so we can never resemble the beloved who allowed even his respect to be infringed upon, right? To allow even his dignity be to be trampled on, to allow even, you know, these basic human attachments that we have um, to be let go of, right? So Christ was, again, this perfect uh self-emptying love because he didn't cling to any of these things even though he is not just uh, an honored man but he is the creator of the universe right so detachment then is um, in some sense um, this iterative process by which we taste of the goodness of God and it convinces us of the inequality between the things that we've been attached to and the goodness of of the Lord, right? When I taste and see that the Lord is good, as the psalm says, right? Then the things that I have been clinging to, right? Whether they are things or people or honors, right? Then these things pale in comparison. They seem cheap, right? And so I'm attracted, God attracts my heart to let go of even more. Right? This negation to, to empty myself even more because he has given us a taste of something much better. He's given us a taste of what he will continue to do with us as we continue this process of, of, of emptying. Right? So this is really the idea behind asceticism. The asceticism is not just about a sort of you know, physical mortification or, or sacrifice of the body, but it's about learning how we recognize, excuse me, recognize these attachments and then voluntarily begin to let go of them, right? And we practice that with the basic necessities of food and and, uh, time and and things like that that we try to practice during the fast. Um, So think, again, think in terms of not being attached to church and attached to service and attached to the commandments so much as 
as, as a letting go, as a detachment of the things that are in competition with uh, that empty vessel that God wants to fill uh, with his divine life. The, the second attribute or characteristic would be comparing or um, uh, making the distinction between vulnerability and strength. Vulnerability and strength. The word vulnerability, usually in the modern context, is, is um, associated with um, a, a sort of weakness. You know, The word vulnerable comes from a Latin word, which means, uh, the word vulnus means wound. So the vulnerable, the vulnerable person is the woundable person. He is the person who is capable of being wounded. And that's not usually in the modern sense a good thing. Right, We want to protect ourselves from being wounded. But when we look at Christ and his self-emptying, he was extremely vulnerable. Right, He lived that total vulnerability, the vulnerability of poverty and, uh, again, of rejection, of mockery, of the physical suffering. He opened himself up to every possible wound, even from his own close circle, from his own close friends, Right? To be abandoned by them, to be rejected by them, to be denied by them. He didn't exclude himself from that vulnerable experience. Right? So an emptiness that resembles Christ means also that we have to somehow become comfortable with a life of vulnerability. That we accept to be woundable. To be woundable. Right? Um, to be open, to be rawly open in the sense that, you know, even in one of the um, examples in the Gospels, when Jesus wants to heal um, uh, a man with a withered hand, um, uh, in front of a group of people, he, he asks him to expose his hand. Right? And which is, if you think about it, is a, it's a, it could be a very difficult thing for somebody to do who's already embarrassed, who's already trying to hide this wound, this, to hide this um, you know, impediment that they have. And, and Jesus almost wants this person to reveal it first, you know, to be so uh, vulnerable. You know? And in that vulnerability, then, God is able to, um, again, draw the person into a kind of intimacy, right? person is not clinging to themselves to their um, uh, a certain control over their life but they are they are open right so a, a vulnerable per vulnerable person is always open he's not closed off protecting himself right so there's a certain beauty in vulnerability right there's of course there's a there's what we see of course what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ in his vulnerability that people take advantage of that right and he allowed that to happen. But there's a certain, there's, what is it about the Lord Jesus Christ that appeals to the world? And in some sense, it's his vulnerability. It's that as God, he allowed that kind of vulnerability on the cross, even his nakedness, right? I mean, there's some scholars that debate whether he was fully naked. There's some who say that in the crucifixion, the person was fully naked. You know? So imagine even the vulnerability of the shame of one's nakedness in front of his mother, in front of his disciples, in front of the, the mocking uh, crowd, 
right? Uh, as if to say that the shame that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden and they covered themselves with, Jesus was willing to be exposed, to be vulnerable even in the shame that Adam and Eve were not capable of uh, being exposed in. Uh, so it's, it's, it, it's something um, that requires a lot of discernment and wisdom in the spiritual life, right? How to be so raw, how to be so open, how to be so vulnerable, um, and at the same time to do it in a way that's wise, you know, to do it in a way that is salvific and not um, you know, harmful to, to the person. Yeah, give him the other cheek. Yeah. Uh, to, to what extent, yeah. especially when we uh, apply it to what Jesus did when he was in the trial? Yeah. When somebody. So there's, I think there's a couple things. You know, on the one hand, the call to vulnerability is something very personal. I, I cannot make others vulnerable. Like I cannot risk exposing, let's say, my wife and my children to that vulnerability. That's not my role to, to allow harm. I have to protect the weak. I have to protect the poor and the, and the weak and the one who has no a voice of justice. I have to defend that person. But when it comes to myself, I should be stretching myself more and more to accept that vulnerability. What to the point of total, in the example of Christ, to the point of self-annihilation, to the point of total annihilation, to the point of total death. Yeah. But again, according to the grace that, uh, that, that we receive, if we're not able to arrive at that perfect vulnerability, we have to begin with what we're able to do, right? So, for example, there are some people you hear, they say, um, I go to church, I take communion, but I leave right away because I don't want to deal with anybody. I, I, anybody I deal with, they upset me, they're going to say something, you know. And so they, they have this wall of protection. So there's no love, there's no relationship, there's no community, there's no fellowship. They have cut themselves off in an, in an effort to protect themselves because they're afraid that that vulnerability is going to hurt. And yes, but... Did the hurt, did, did the hurt, vulnerability of Christ, did it cause him to stop loving the people who hurt him? No. He was so, so full of that perfect love of, of God that even the, the enemies, the, the ones who crucified him, his heart was totally open to them. Pure forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is the goal. The goal is to be vulnerable, to be uh, totally open, and to be, you know, there was one of the saints who said, uh, I'm paraphrasing, it's been a while since I read the quote, but he said, if you want to be perfect, like to, to really die to yourself, he said, go and sell yourself and be a slave. Right? Sell, so give, sell yourself as a slave and go live as a slave. He said, okay, you cannot do this. Don't do that. Don't sell yourself as a slave. But sell all of your possessions and give it to the poor. He says, you cannot do this. It's okay. Don't sell all of your possessions and give to the poor. Give half of your goods to the poor. 
He says, you cannot do this. It's okay. Give 10% of your goods to the poor. He says, you cannot do this. Okay, at least don't steal from the poor. Don't humiliate the poor. And they said, if you cannot do this, then I have nothing else I can help you with. You know. But he's saying, there's, there's degrees. There's degrees of that total self-gift. Right? Christ is the model. And we have many saints who, who, who lived that model. They, they, they lived that total uh, vulnerability and self-emptying. Even it meant that they lost positions, they lost dignity, they were falsely accused. Um, uh, in a sense, we could say, we were just talking about uh, the, the new book that came out about Pokrolus. And when you read his life, you see that he was vulnerable. He accepted to be criticized, to be persecuted from his own bishops, to be written against in the public uh, uh you know, he, there were many times in, in the newspapers he uh, was, was accused in the newspapers of terrible things. And he had a practice to never reply. Then one time, the editor of one of these big newspapers, he contacted him and he said, and they accused him of something like mishandling funds, moving money to, to fund the Marimina Monastery, or something like that. You know, and it was some bad accusations about mishandling money and, you know, things like that. So he called the Pope and he told him, uh, uh, since I gave the, the, the writer of this article the chance to, uh, to say whatever they wanted to say, I will give you a chance to write your response. So the Pope said, okay, I will. So he started to think about, like, his response to defend himself. And then his disciple went to him and he said, what are you doing, Sayyid? You've never defended yourself before. Why are you going to start now? And he said, you know what, my son, you're right. What was I thinking? And he called the editor back or the owner of the, and he told them, I'm not going to respond. So he allowed his name to be drawn into the mud, you know, dragged into the mud. He, he, he insisted to accept that vulnerability. Abun uh, Rafael of Aminas used to say that they used to receive letters and letters and letters, personal letters that were all kinds of uh, very terrible things written about the Pope. You know, very, 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 very bad things that were written about. And he would try to hide them from the Pope. And the Pope would tell him, open the drawer, pull out all the letters and read them one by one with a loud voice. And he would just sit there and listen and he would nod. He took it as training, you know, as uh, it's good for him to hear these negative things, to accept these negative things, and to respond in love. See, the, it didn't turn him into a bitter person, you know. You know, one time one of these people who wrote against him, he used to sign his name <coughs> Ibn Dioscorus, the son of Dioscorus. Dioscorus, yeah, he was one of the big patriarchs in our church, saints. It was like a pseudonym, pseudonym. Yeah, he didn't want to put his real name. So one time this man, after he became Pope, he was writing against him like in his nomination and all these things, you know, he's an uh, uneducated monk and da, da, da. he's going to ruin the church. He's no good for the church. And then after he became Pope, after some time, this man found himself uh, in the cathedral with the Pope. And he was in the line with, I don't know, dozens and dozens of other people. So when the Pope saw him, they'd never met before. So the Pope told them... Uh, 
you know, uh, we're related. But the man told them, uh, Sayyidina, I don't understand. I don't think we have, uh, we're, not, we're not related in any way. He said, Lala, we're related. So he said, Sayyidina, I don't know how, in what way are we related? He said, Mishinta ibn Dioscorus, Dioscorus ya ibn Akhuya. Yeah, the patriarchs. Dioscorus is a patriarch. If you're Ibn Dioscorus, that means you're my nephew. Yeah, you know. What I mean? But he was shocked. How did you know Sayyidin? He took him with a big hug. That's it. It was over. All those years of writing against him and all, how many hundreds, thousands of people read this newspaper articles and believed what they read. And he forgave me. His heart was full of love. Right? So unless we stretch ourselves and we stretch our heart to this vulnerability, we will never learn how to, we will never receive divine love because the love that saints like Pope Krulus had is not a human love. It's divine love. right? It's a, it's, a, it's a godly love. It's the love of Jesus on the cross. So where do we get this love? Again, when, when the beloved sees his beloved empty, he cannot stay away long, but he comes and he fills him. So the more the Pope did that, the more the Pope Krulus did that stretching of his that vulnerability and that self-emptying, God kept filling him, filling him, filling him with more and more love. It was pure love. Pure love. There's more stories, but I don't want to get uh, too sidetracked on uh, talking about Pope Rulus, But So I would say that, number one, we, 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 we act on our behalf. There's a difference between defending others. I have to defend others. But when it comes to myself, I should again practice that stretching to be more have a greater capacity for that woundability. Right? And the other thing regarding Jesus at the trial was there's a difference between accepting a form of abuse or mockery, but, but not um, ever accepting something that's not true. Right? So Jesus never accepted to be accused of falsehood. Like, you know, he never said, yes, you're right, I'm, I'm not from the Father, I'm, uh, I'm a blasphemer. No. I, when it came to the truth, he always had to speak the truth. So we always speak the truth, which is different than him accepting um, the price of the truth, the cost. You know, he, what he suffered was because he, because he insisted on the truth, that yes, I am the Son of God. So... I think, again, there's a story in the Desert Fathers, I forget, I'm sure you remember which Desert Father it was, who they said, I don't know, if, one of these famous Desert Fathers, they told him, uh, this man is like, a, he's like a fornicator, and he kept quiet. And he's like a murderer, he kept quiet. And he's a heretic. And then he said, no, 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 no. Stop there. They said to him, why, his disciples said, why you accepted to be called all of these things, but when it came to be called a heretic, you defended. He said, because a heretic means I'm cut off from the truth, from the source, truth. I'm not living in the truth. But they, all the other things I can accept. Yes, I'm a fornicator, I'm a murderer, I'm a thief, all of these things, to some extent are true. They manifest themselves in my sins in some way. But to call me a heretic, this is, I have to speak up. Right? I, I'm sure maybe you, you've heard that story before. So, um, learning to live with this uh, vulnerability, this vulnerability, first of all, of our sins, right? In the example of this, the man with the withered hand, it's an image for us of not trying to hide from in our relationship with God of all of our weaknesses. But we need to be like children 
who run to our father and show our, our father, our mother, the scrape that we have from our fall, you know. Um, and there's a certain vulnerability in, 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 in um, accepting that sinfulness and that, and that uh, misery that sin creates in us in our, um, in our stance before our, our Heavenly Father. To, when you think about all the, many of the people in the Gospels who received grace, it was because they were vulnerable. The blind man, Bartimaeus, who was yelling on the side of the road, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they told him, a bunch of people told him to shut up. He was making a fool out of himself. You know, you're just making, you're just looking worse, like, you know, pathetic. And what did he do? What did he do? He yelled even louder. And Jesus stopped and he went and he healed him. Zacchaeus made himself vulnerable by climbing up the tree. Again, he was mocked for that. And uh, But who received, out of all of the people that were following Jesus in the crowd, who received the grace that day? It was him. Um, the sinful woman who barged into the house of uh, Simon the Pharisee. She made herself vulnerable. She exposed herself. Everybody was laughing at her. Look at the, the sinful woman, what she's doing. right? So the vulnerable people are the ones that attracted the grace, they're the ones who, whom, whom Jesus approached very, very quickly. There was nothing, there was no impediment. There was no self, ego. It was lost, you know. So, so we need to learn that vulnerability in our relationship with God. We need to learn that vulnerability in our relationship with one another. As much as that exposes us, as much as that sometimes means, yes, we will get hurt, but, but we cannot live without it. Again, I give the example of and unfortunately, it's very common in our churches. You know, the, the people who say, I don't, I don't want to deal with anybody. And I don't like anybody. I don't deal with anybody. I go to the church. I take communion. I, well, you know, I don't want anybody to speak to me. I don't want to speak to anybody because I know something bad's going to happen or somebody's going to say something or I'm going to... Okay, you can keep protecting yourself, but you will never, you will never become a capacity for love. You can't. Um... So vulnerability with, with, with God and vulnerability with one another. Um, another aspect of this um, emptying, of this capacity, is learning to accept the silence of God. Learning to accept the silence of God. And not just to accept it, but to even to begin to love the silence of God. Because... One of the things that we crave, which comes partly from, again, um, the ego and the self-love, which, which is constantly looking for things to be attached to and things to possess, um, is to have a certain experience of God, right? to have a certain sensible experience of God. That when I pray, I should feel something in prayer. When I attend the liturgy and partake in the sacraments, I should have some sort of experience of God um, but one of the things that, again, we can see this maybe very beautifully on the cross when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's, a, there's an intense moment of, in a sense, the silence of God that Jesus allowed himself. I know there's many explanations. Some say that he's simply reciting the beginning of Psalm 22, which is true. It is the beginning of Psalm 22 and the ending of the psalm ends in victory. But... There are many psalms that are victorious psalms, but he chose this one 
Um, and as one of the fathers said that, that yes, Jesus voluntarily accepted to experience a certain abandonment by the father. There isn't an ontological, there isn't an actual separation. There isn't an actual abandonment by the father. But did he allow himself, like he allowed himself to experience everything else? He allowed himself to experience hunger and pain and, and rejection by his disciples. So did he allow himself to experience even what it feels like when God seems distant from us? When, God see, when, we see, when it seems that we've been abandoned by God? I think the answer is it's completely in line with the, with the incarnation. It's completely in line with the self-emptying of the Son of God. For him to voluntarily accept that kind of experience. So it means that sometimes um, when we cry out to, to God in our prayers or we're going through a difficulty and all we receive back is silence, that this is something that we have to learn to be content with and even to see the beauty of. Right? That there's, through our, our faith and, and hope and love, that the silence doesn't disturb us. It doesn't shake us. We, we begin to understand that the silence of God is another form of His love. Just like when Jesus was asleep in the boat, when, they, when the disciples were shaken by the, by the storm. Right? There's a certain beauty you know, in, the, in, the sleep, in, the, in the sleeping Christ. Right? As if He's saying, I'm silent, I'm not with you, I'm not active, I'm not visible, I'm not audible, and yet I'm the, cre- I'm the sustainer of the universe. And you have nothing to fear with me asleep. You have no reason to be afraid. You don't, I don't need to be awake right? in order for you to have faith that you're not going to perish. Right? And it was a lesson for them to, to still live in the realm of faith and love in the silence of, of, of their master when he's not present, when he's not visible, when he's not audible, right? So, when there are times, of course, when God will allow us to have a certain experience of his presence, a certain warmth in prayer, a certain experience of uh, his presence uh, in, in, the, in the services of the church. Perhaps we, we sense uh, um, a certain word that's being given to us from him through um, something very specific, circumstances in our life, you know, when we say, oh, clearly, like, what happened today was God, you know, hitting me over the head, you know, with, with a two-by-four. Like, you know, sometimes, yes, God communicates to us in that way. And there are times where we cry out to Him, when we seek Him, when we ask, and there's silence. There's nothing. There's no response. And we have to, as part of that experience of being a capacity, we have to uh, be, learn to live in that silence. The, to learn to, to, to love God through the silence, to believe in Him through the silence, to trust in Him through the silence, right? So, you know, one spiritual father, he said that, you know, when, when God speaks, in a sense, He is giving more than He's taking. But when He's silent, is when He is taking more than He's giving. It's a time where He's asking you to manifest your faith and your love. Because right? if you're always receiving, 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 right, right, then there's always um, there's a part of the self that's being satisfied. So there's a danger that even self-love grows at the same time that I'm receiving 
godly consolation and godly gifts in, pre in the presence of his, the, his divine presence, that even with those good things, I might not be learning how to let go of that, that old self because it's still being fed in a sense. But only when I can love in the silence, when I can love in the abandonment, then my, then my love is, is purified, it's more perfect. So it is so it's not just about faith it's about love too it's not just about will i believe in god will i trust him even though he's silent but it's also about loving the silence loving the god who's saying at this moment you don't need to hear from me you have everything where like the disciples in the boat you have everything that you need without me you don't need to wake me up everything is within you my power is working within you. My love is working within you, even if you don't feel it. Um, you know, there is a, a lot of controversy about uh, Mother Teresa after um, her private letters were published. And she talked about in her private letters to her confession father, spiritual father, about years and years of, of the silence of God in her life. I, I, I don't know if some of you are aware of, of that. Um, they called it Mother Teresa's Dark Night. You know, and it was a period of several, several years where in prayer she felt nothing. As if God wasn't there. The Mother Teresa who was like pure faith, pure love, you know, pure self-gift, was secretly struggling, not struggling, but she was secretly confessing that a big part of her life, in the last 30 years of her life, God was silent. Some people were shaken by that. They said, wow, maybe she was a fraud. Maybe she was just pretending, you know. Maybe she was an atheist at heart, you know, because God wasn't alive in, in her life. But there's an interesting story. I'm kind of going off script, but it's, it's, it's okay. There's an interesting story about that. One of the priests, his name is Father Dominique, who knew Mother Teresa very well and used to go and spend uh, lots of time with her giving retreats to... Um, to her, the sisters of her order around the world. He had heard that Mother Teresa, before she started this new order called the Sisters of Charity, she was already a nun in another established uh, monastic order. And she had these mystical experiences of Christ, some sort of visions and, and uh, very clear experience where Christ uh, spoke to her and asked her to engage in this kind of work, the, what she called serving the poorest of the poor, the ones who nobody would serve because they were the ones that nobody would even approach, like the worst of the worst of those dying in the streets or forgotten by society. And she received a very, very specific series of ex mystical experiences of Christ to begin this ministry. So Father Dominique, when, when he started to feel that Mother Teresa was getting older and that he might not see her the next year because of her age, he said, you know, I've always wanted to ask her about those experiences that she had of Christ. But I was always shy to ask her. But now that I know that I may not see her after this year, he said, I, I decided to ask her. So when I was alone with her, I told her, Mother, tell me about those mystical experiences of Christ. 
And you know what her response was? It's, it's mind baffling. She said, Father, I prayed after those experiences that God would wipe them from my memory. Why would she say that? She would be attached to that experience. That's, that experience would be giving her sustenance and energy. And she wanted to do it from a place of emptiness, pure love, pure faith, pure trust. Right? I mean, imagine if every night when you pray, you find the St. Mary and Archangel Michael and your patron saint, they come and they join you in prayer. Are you going to have a hard time praying each night? It's going to be very easy. You pray for hours. Right? But when there's silence and you pray, then it's coming from a pure place of love, right? It's coming from a total offering, right? You're not sustained by anything sensible or there's no consolation even. There's no joy sometimes even. But then it means it's like the love between spouses. If you love your spouse only because your spouse treats you well, is it a pure love? Or is it just uh, a kind of like, uh, well, you, you scratch my back, I scratch your back. So if you don't scratch my back, am I going to scratch your back? What if you don't scratch my back for the rest of my life? Am I going to scratch your back? Right? So any mature relationship that has to let go of the selfish love and become a pure selfless, self-giving love has to have a love that gives but doesn't ask in return. Right? So... Mother Teresa, she wanted her love to be pure to God. So she wanted that all of her service. So what people didn't understand is that the dark night of Mother Teresa was something that she asked for. It was something that she wanted because she wanted to love God. And, but now, how do we know that, she was, that God was working in her and was filling her with His love and His power and His grace and His faith? It was because she kept growing. She kept growing in greater and greater faith and greater and greater love, greater and greater joy. I mean, one of the priests that uh, wrote a book that was uh, about Mother Teresa that was with her, he said, I've never met a more joyful person in my life. Right? It doesn't make sense. The person whose whole life is dealing with misery and pain and suffering and holding people who are dying in her arms, who are, who are crying out in pain and asking why and where is God, you know, that person is the most joyful person that you've ever met in your life. So the point is, is that the difference between somebody who is in a darkness that's a kind of depression is that the depression closes them in on themselves. Yeah? The depression closes them in on themselves. But the darkness that comes with purifying faith and purifying love expands the person. They, they, they serve more, they love more, they accept more. So that you know God is at work in the person, even if they don't feel it, they don't sense it, they don't experience it. Right? And that's what happened with somebody like, like Mother Teresa. So, so the silence is something that we need to um, not just be okay with, but even to see the beauty in, to see it as this is the work of God to bring a greater purification of my, my faith and my hope and my love. Let me mention one other one, which is waiting and longing versus possessing. Right. We tend to think of, again, spiritual life as the sense of arriving at, at some stage in my spiritual life or possessing some sort of milestone in my spiritual life. But the Christian life 
um, is more about, again, being comfortable with, with and loving the, the posture of waiting, the posture of longing and desiring even more than possessing. I'm sure all of us have experienced that sometimes it seems like the more I draw closer to God or the more that I, I work towards that um, union with, with Christ, I feel that I'm, I'm, I, don't, I, I don't possess it, but I desire it more. I long for it. But the, the longing becomes more intense, but I don't feel like I've possessed it. And, and th- so if we imagine, well, when we're trying to possess something that's infinite, eternal, how can I, as a, as a finite, temporal, you know, uh, material being in this life, how can I possess something that is infinite and, and eternal? So the saints tell us that when we touch the life of God, when we experience the, that union with God, it leaves us with a greater intense longing that sometimes feels like a, an emptiness, like, like a lack of possession. But I'm just left with more hunger, more thirst for God. But that in and of itself is a sign that we possess. In this life, the, the sign that we actually do possess the life of God within us is that there's this intensity of our longing and our desire. So, um, learning to, to enjoy the waiting. Right? I mean, you read the Psalms and so many of the Psalms are about waiting upon the Lord, desiring and longing for the Lord and His salvation, right? Um, David is impatient, you know, at times with his waiting for the Lord, but he's trusting that he's coming, right? But when does this coming actually take place? It's, it's like it never does, right? It's like he comes and he goes, he comes and he goes, or, her, or he takes a while before he comes, right? But there is this constant stature of a, of a person who's waiting, right? Which is something that we, we need to be comfortable with because we don't like to wait, right? As, as modern people, we don't like to wait. Right? We, we, we now, you know, we want things very quickly, right? So we have drive-throughs, we have, you know, you can sit, order your coffee in advance and go pick it up. You can have food delivered to your house. So we don't, we don't like waiting. And, and so sometimes this can carry over into our spiritual life where we get frustrated. We get frustrated that something that I think I should have possessed by now, a virtue or overcoming a sin or some experience of God in prayer, I haven't possessed it yet, so I'm done. I'm not, I can't wait anymore. Right? But what we need to understand is that there's nothing else that we do in this life but to continue to wait. Right? That is the posture that we take in this life, is that we are in, in, in this constant state of waiting. So Father Henry Nouwen, he talks about what he calls open-ended waiting, open-ended waiting. And what he means by that is that normally when we think of waiting, we're waiting for something specific, right? If I'm at the bus stop and I'm waiting for the bus, well, what am I waiting for? I'm waiting for something very specific. The bus should arrive and I should get on the bus, right? So normally when we wait, we're waiting for the doctor to call us in for our appointment, right? We're waiting for Abuna to come to start the literature. We, we know what we're waiting for and, and we know how to measure that we've achieved or possessed what we're waiting for. But what Father Henry Nouwen talks about, he says, the Christian has an open-ended waiting. He doesn't 
have something specific he's waiting for when it comes to, to God, when it comes to his own poverty and overcoming, let's say, his sins and, and striving for certain virtues and certain experiences in the spiritual life. The Christian is open, right? He is just waiting, trusting in God that whatever he comes, whenever he comes and whatever he comes with is what I need, right? So it's not something, I'm not putting a measurement on that I've waited for something, it arrived, now I move on to the next thing that I'm waiting for. But it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an attitude of openness. Right? Again, going back to the beginning, this idea of capacity, receptivity, openness. Right? How to have this constant openness to whatever God brings. Right? That's why the saints are people who, who live in the present moment and they see that everything comes from the hand of God. Whatever happens, they're content with because they're open to it. They have no, nothing specific. What will happen tonight? What will happen tomorrow? Will I achieve what I hope to achieve with my work today? For the saints, whether, you, whether it's A or B, it's the same, right? That, there's a famous story that I, I've probably said many times about uh, a monk who was praying, asking the Lord to enlighten him how to find the way of perfection. And so an angel appeared to him and said, the Lord has answered your prayer. And if you go to this specific church, you will find the answer to your prayers of, of how to be perfect. So he was very excited. He went to the church. As he was going into the church, he found on the steps of the church uh, a poor man. And um, as the monk is excited to go inside the church, thinking that the answer is waiting for him inside, he, he kind of casually says to the poor man, Good day, sir. And so the poor man responds to him and he says, uh, good day to you too, sir. But if you don't mind me saying, um, I've never had a bad day. So the monk uh, looks him at him and, and sees that he's homeless, he's dirty, he's hungry. So he's now, what do you mean you've never had a bad day? Your life is, your whole life is a bad day, right? So he said to him, well... If the Lord sends me food, I say, glory be to you, O Lord. If the Lord doesn't send me food, I say, glory be to you, O Lord. If today the sun is out, I say, glory be to you, O Lord. If today it's raining, I say, glory be to you, O Lord. And he started to list basically many things using this kind of example. And basically saying, for my life, it doesn't make a difference. Whether it's sunny or raining, whether the food is this or that, whether it comes or doesn't come, whether it comes at this time or it doesn't come, everything to me is the arrival of God's grace. Everything to me is the arrival of His love. See, open-ended waiting. Open-ended waiting. So the monk understood that the answer to his prayer was in this man. I think we'll end there. Good enough for, for us this evening to meditate on.